Welcome to Anti-Visions. I'm your host, Eric Wimberly. Hey friends. Well, today we're going to be talking about critical race theory. I'm going to attempt to break it down to a Cliff Notes version, and yet at the same time, I want to do it justice. I want to let you know and and read to you some quotes from the actual thinkers and take it, you know, seriously while at the same time understanding that we can't uh cover the the full scope, not even nearly uh in just in just this short period of time. First, this is just if you look up critical race theory on Wikipedia, uh, it has a lot to say, and, and you'll see a lot of the jargon. But um, the, one of the first definitions that I thought was pretty good is it said, postmodern critical theory analyzes the fragmentation of cultural identities in order to challenge modernist era constructs such as meta-narratives, rationality, and universal truths while politicizing social problems. And it keeps going on. So that is quite the mouthful. But if you listened to the uh, talk on postmodernism as it relates to systemic racism, you might recall that I was talking about how modern uh, thought, modern civilization, particularly Western civilization, but modern thinking is what the postmoderns sought to uh, dismantle. And, and so here what we've got is they use basically cultural identities. It's kind of referencing uh, political or, or what is it, group identity, group, group politics, identity politics. And they harness that so that they can challenge the modernist era constructs. So they're challenging modern thinking, the system that's built on modern thinking, the civilization that we know it ultimately. And then that word constructs, like I remember I said that basically they believe that the world, the reality that we live in is a social construct. It's really arbitrary, whether it's the language we use or the values that we have. Um, it's arbitrary, but it's also embedded so that it's it's like already its own kind of enclosed system and you can't just step out of it. It's not like um, we can just change it all at the snap of a finger. That's not what they think, but they think that ultimately there is no real objective truth or reality um there are there are multiple truths so it's just relativity and and it's based on subjective experience because there's no way for a human being to know objectively anything beyond you know really their own brain and and so it's a highly skeptical perspective but anyway the so the the modernist era construct is is the entire system that we live in, and it's the system that they see as incredibly flawed. If you recall that I was talking about, it's it's flawed to the extent that it needs to be uh, overthrown. It needs to be torn down, shut down, and a new one needs to be built. 
So um, it it just lists lists off a few of the the I'll call them sins. They would never say that, but some of the sins of the modernist era, like meta narratives. And if you recall, I talked about meta narrative is um, like you're probably hearing the word narrative all the time now. The narrative, the narrative, the narrative. And you know we know what a narrative is from grade school, but um, the way that it's being used today in politics and in this in the public platform is really coming out of critical theory because they use this all the time and so the meta narrative is the overarching story like history and the whole perception of who we are as a people you know based on western civilization so the entire way that we view the world the way that we understand it the way that we explain it particularly as you look at it through history but even up through the present that's kind of the grand meta narrative okay so to them, that is that is bad because all it is is a, it's an assertion of power. It's a social construct that was designed in order to control people. There's not any real truth to it. Maybe there are some truths to it, but there's no real truth to it other than the the dominant ones in the culture that hold the power uh, over time have have built this construct. And so our whole understanding that's been built is simply to control us and to kind of dictate and be able to hold down other people groups so that they can't, you know, so that they can't rise up and have equal, uh, equal life or whatever, whatever it is, the equal benefits of the oppressing class. Therefore, a narrative in general is very important to your critical race theorist or critical theorist. So you need to understand also, I, I want to point this out. Critical theory is not just critical race theory. Critical theory actually actually predates postmodernism. It, it really kind of started developing in the 30s. Postmodernism really started to develop in the 50s. But the two in many ways uh, work and merge together. Critical race theory was developed by Derrick Bell in the early 80s. But there are other critical theories like there's critical gender theory there's feminist critical theory there's um oh goodness there's colonial critical theory because you know colonialism and imperialism is a bad thing there's there's actually uh, overweight or fat critical theory anything you can think of there's a critical theory for it so this is one branch that we're looking at but I, I, they all function with the same value you know same substructure and then you just plug in whatever it might be, race or gender or, you know, feminist studies, whatever it might be. And you, you would see that it comes, it, it operates the same way. It's like an operating system. I don't know if that's the best analogy. So anyway, they do value narratives, just not the meta narrative. And the narratives are the stories of the small people, the oppressed, the ones that have not had their chance. They Their voice wasn't heard. So that's why we see in history more and more focus on, you know, we want to get the narrative of the, the people we never heard their voice. So and, you know, we want to listen to the Native Americans voice. We want to listen to to the slaves voice. We want to listen to the people who lived, who were in the gulags and the Soviet Union. We And I think that's highly valuable. I, I completely agree with that idea. I don't attribute it to postmodernism, though, though I don't think they get the, the luxury of claiming that they invented this as something that's valuable. Um, of course, it's valuable to enrich history, but their purpose in it is to 
to shift the locus of history onto the oppressed, onto the voice that never really was heard. And in doing so, it skews the view of history because they also tend to mute and delete the rest of the context and tend to leave out a lot of other details and it, it, it creates a false narrative. But that's their purpose. They say that these narratives help disrupt. So basically, they kind of constantly want to disrupt the, the flow of, of this oppressive narrative. And, and every time you do this, you're causing disruption and you're subverting it. And they see that as, as the road towards freedom, as in it's the road towards, towards tearing things down to where you can get to where you want to get. Now, when it comes to the meta narrative being skewed, of course, they really don't care because, like I said, you know, we're thinking from a logocentric Western mentality, which is bad. You know, I mean, in, in that's not how they would say it because, you know, you're not about, you know, postmodern wouldn't say, oh, it's bad because there's no good and there's no bad. But like I, I said in the last podcast, there's no such, you can't be a true postmodernist. It's just impossible. It's, it's an idea that no one could ever really live or exercise. So anyway, uh, again, like I was saying, they don't view that as a problem because to rewrite history and make it fictional is not problematic for them because in their mind, the history that we currently have already is fiction. So what's the difference? But they do value those smaller narratives. I do too, like I said, but it, it enriches and it enhances and it gives a fuller picture. But what they want to do is delete the whole backdrop and the main stream of history and then just give these, these little stories. And these little stories, primarily one of the huge elements of them is they've got a lot of pathos, you know, a lot of, a lot of emotion, which is, which is fine because it really connects us, but then there's not, if it's not connected in the broader stream, there's not much logic and there's not what I would call intellectual honesty. And so people tend to start believing and making decisions based on emotions that are not really contextualized correctly. So all of those things are values that I just said. That's a value of critical theory is to storytell for that reason, to create that kind of emotional response and to cause people to begin to believe their story. So anyway, they're challenging modernism, the construct. They're challenging the meta narratives. They're challenging the next the next thing Wikipedia says after meta narratives is rationality. Okay, and I just referenced this is basically this idea, even rationality itself, the way that we think it's Western, it's logocentric, according to them. And so rationality and logic, like my my statement about the flow of history and that it's more logical to add in these narratives and get a grander picture and that it's logical to understand that people are actually believing things that are not true when you don't tell them the whole story. Now, of course, that's that's debatable because they say, well, wait a minute, you didn't tell the whole story because you didn't tell the story of these, you know, oppressed people groups. And and, you know, fair enough. There, That's that's true in many ways. But there is a lot of there are a lot of things that we've only uncovered over these years, too. But thankfully, through 
also dealing with our prejudices and those kind of issues. There has been more willingness to share those other stories, but they don't change the story. And that's that's a rational argument I'm making. And they don't value rationality. They don't value logic. Now, I'm saying they with the understanding it's not like there's this group this club that meets together and it's this big conspiracy and they all got together and said okay don't believe in anything logical or rational no but the ones that are serious about it they th there's a whole canon of critical theory literature that has developed over time i mean it is prolific so they're eating the same assumptions and buying the same assumptions. And ultimately, that is a foundational idea of postmodernism and even critical theory is that even this whole system of logic, like the bad word, logocentric, that means that as Westerners, we're centered on logic and on thought and systems of thinking, linear thinking. History begins and ha has a beginning and it has a flow and then it ends. And they they see that as completely arbitrary and arbitrary perspective. So even logic itself and even science is highly questioned within the field of critical theory and postmodernism. Now, I haven't gone deeply into it all, but a lot of the rationale behind that is because they view even the whole idea of the, the scientific theory and, and even the, the scientific studies that we've done, they view them as questionable because it's it's driven by power structures you know so really the dominant culture which would be white culture is if there is such a thing but there's the white people <laughs> see I, I i hate talking in these general terms but but that's the way the critical theorists are everybody is in a group you, they they don't really acknowledge identity that's not a like like individualism as i i mean your identity is with the group not as an individual and so White people have the power, and, and they've been the ones doing all the science stuff. They're the ones who came up with it all. And so, so it's questionable because in their thinking, somehow these race theories and gender theories, for that matter, somehow they think that it skews the, the scientific findings, that there's a lack of objectivity and of, and of course that's the other half of it is that they don't believe in objectivity so how do you believe that you could actually find things out through science and yet i will i i seriously doubt many of them would come and be like i don't believe in science but they're you know people are fully capable of holding a completely con two contradictory views in their mind and being just fine with it i mean of course they believe in science but on the same note they don't, because when it comes to politics and, and it comes to these social issues, the more that there's a push to implement these social theories into law, into policy, there are many of them, particularly around gender, homosexual studies, trans, you know, transgender, all of this stuff. There's so much we don't know scientifically, and then there are so many things that we do know scientifically, and if you go passing legislation that science hasn't even really proven or disproven, that's really questionable, except for the fact that they don't really care about that. Because even if science has disproven certain things, they'll go on ahead and implement it as, as law. So that might be a little abstract, but I don't want to get sidetracked. So another thing is that they challenge universal truths well we've talked about that while po politicizing social problems now of course my goal is not to talk politics 
But within critical theory, politics is the way to go. It's it's all about activism and and politicizing these social problems. So I have to acknowledge that. I have to engage it to some extent. Okay. Well, I haven't gotten nearly as far as I thought that I would by this point in time, but I, sp- I spent a lot of time on that little definition, but hopefully that was a good review and synopsis of really the postmodern view that critical theory carries. But I do want to introduce a couple of people. I mentioned him before. Derek Bell is the uh, the the person who really came up with critical race theory in particular. And he was an African-American law professor at Harvard in the 70s and 80s and really developed critical race theory in the early 80s. I just want to share there's there's several tenets of critical race theory. And, uh, you know, some of them you would recognize like white privilege. And of course, uh, like we talked about systemic racism, that that clearly that's one of the tenets. But according to Bell in his breakdown, the first tenet was was simply and this is systemic racism, was that racism is the ordinary state of affairs. It's the it's the in this in this country, at least that racism is embedded in absolute every, absolutely everything and it's not just embedded in the institutions it's at work at all times so the question is not when racism will manifest the question is how is racism manifesting in this situation it doesn't matter it, what interaction it might be between anyone and in many ways he also sees it as gosh i can't remember the phrase for it but but that basically even the the minorities, particularly African-Americans, but all minorities, that they've basically been desensitized. I can't remember the phrase he uses to this whole you know system of racism. And so they've kind of gotten to where they've accepted it without really realizing it. And so in a sense, even even if uh, African-American is interacting with an African-American, racism is is manifesting not necessarily from one to the other, but the whole interaction is actually evidence of the fact that this is a, a racially constructed society where there's white supremacy and domination. So it's, it's very, very skeptical, cynical, and and, and kind of conspiratorial. And that's one of the difficulties about this, friends, is is that, you know, the things that I'm sharing, I, I, I wish I could share more because I think it really helps to understand it, to understand that people are really believing this stuff. And I'm not saying that people don't have a right to have these theories, but it is a theory. And that's one thing. But when when you come to the table with a theory that you can't quite prove, but you also carry the system that there's no need to prove it because because there is no real truth anyway, then it it, it I feel like it's kind of uh, it's disingenuous. So for us, what we have to do, not just with this, but anything like I talked about last time is really test the assumptions when when you're listening and right. Right. You know, the, the assumption would be when somebody's sharing something with you, they might without even saying it, have a belief system or a belief statement without actually saying it verbally that everything they just said is built upon. And you might very well not agree with that assumption, but oftentimes we don't pay attention to those assumptions. And then we start grappling with what they said, or maybe even agree with it. 
And by doing that, you swallow the assumption pill whole. I look at it as assumptions as like pills. And I want to know what's in that pill. Like I want to know if you're telling me that's Tylenol, I want to know that it's Tylenol. I want to know, you know, that, that whatever's in that pill, it is what it says. And then I'm going to decide whether I'm going to take it or not. So, so for me, there's two options. There's, there's one saying, Hey, hold on. I don't agree with that assumption. Not because I, I understand it, but because I don't have enough information. So let's get more information or B I have explored it enough and I've decided I don't agree with that assumption. So again, it's just a theory. But right now, these assumptions and theories are being thrown out so fast at people like like rapid fire, like like machine gun fire, actually. And and you're expected to agree and say yes. And there's nothing tested about it. There's nothing proven about it. It's kind of like if we went out and said, well, hey, you can't prove God exists. God, you know. God doesn't exist, therefore you have to believe God exists, and everybody has to believe that God exists. That's what that's what we have is is this kind of unprovable, untestable theory. And and now there's a push to actually make it policy. And I'm not even telling you that that you don't have to agree with it. You might very well study this all out and decide I do agree with it, but my point is that still the the whole society shouldn't have to receive something that hasn't even been tested, proven, or, or agreed upon, and and then just be called a bigot or a racist because you don't agree. That's that is uh, dishonest in my opinion. So the second tenet would be in its interest convergence, and it's the idea that white people only give black people liberty or status or resources or you know anything that will help them if it's in their own self-interest if it's for their own gain so if there's ever a policy passed if there's ever you know or you know any civil rights legislation that ever happened or any decision that's made for the benefit of the African American community from the white you know from the white domination class and so ultimately there's only benefits from white people towards African Americans if it converges with white people's interests. Now, at this point, I, I want to tell a little bit more of the story of it because up until Derek Bell, I think that critical theory was highly unpractical, but it's really starting with Derek Bell where it becomes b begins to become something that actually can get traction and do something in society on, on a grander scale. And the reason for that is really simple because... Critical theory, uh, and particularly the postmodernists that really picked it up, basically deconstructed everything. I mean, they it's it's like really the theory is just it's like acid. You just pour it on stuff and it corrodes and dissolves everything. And that's all the theory is really good for. It it can just break stuff apart. Like I said last week, deconstruction, but it's the kind of deconstruction where you can never put it back together again. Like once you take it apart, it's just in shreds and in ruins. And it's ultimately it's really nihilistic because there are no answers, of course, like I was pointing out there are these contradictions. Like there's no truth. So how do you claim truth? And there there are no morals. So how do you claim morals? And all of that. But, you know, generations are different. And so even though the philosophy is the same, the, gen the generations uh, change that interpretation. And, and by the time you get to the 80s with Derek Bell and his students, there's this desire to do something. You know, we don't just want these theories that shred everything apart and, and there's nothing you can really do with it. So we need to figure out a way to make 
something happen. We need a system of reality and it has to exist. Even though we don't believe in reality, we need to create some kind of system of reality so that we can have these theories about about gender and about race and about all of these other things so that we can carry forth our agenda, right? So at some point, you've got to decide to take on this idea of objective reality, even for your own benefit, even though you won't extend that benefit to, the, to everybody else, but for your own interest, right? So particularly with Kimberly Crenshaw, in 91, so she was a student of Bell, and she is the, the really the brainchild that took critical race theory and critical theory in general and, and, and really gave it legs, arms, feet, hands, everything, you know, where, where it truly uh, became something so real and tangible. And it was really through her developing the theory of intersectionality. And she wrote, she wrote a, a paper or book, Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color. So intersectionality, and you might have heard of this. Uh, if you haven't, it's operating all over the place, and, and maybe you might recognize it now. And uh, I'm just going to briefly share inter intersectionality simply is, is the idea that there's a kind of it's like a hierarchy of of power and of oppression. And so what I mean is at, at the top, you would have your your wasp, you know, your white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male. And then you have white women, because, of course, women are more oppressed than men, even though they're more than 50 percent of the population and, and all that. But anyway, they're more oppressed than men. But then under that, then and, and I, I'm not I don't know the full order, so I'm just kind of giving an example. But under that then would be the African-American male. And then there would be the African-American female, because African-American females are more oppressed than African-American males. And then, you know, then you start getting into gender. So you've got you've got like a homosexual, but it's a white male homosexual and then a white female homosexual and then an African-American homosexual and a, and a white and you just you keep going on. And there there are basically all these places where it can intersect like you can you can be a female and you can be a lesbian and you can be black. So you're in three different categories at that point. And each category counts as its own identity. It's called group identity. And that's how politics works today. You know, that's why we, we love group identity. We love group politics. That's how it all works, like with the polling. You know, they don't want to just know uh, how many people are voting for so-and-so or how many people give their approval. They want to know how many African-Americans living in the inner city who are bisexual, you know, are thumbs up for Trump or whatever, you know, something like that. It's it's it get they want to get down and break all of these stats down because that's how politics is done today. And um, and it's a major strategy of the critical theorists because it was really the brainchild of Crenshaw. And she saw it as a way to bring harmony. Like she thought that this is something that's going to bring harmony and and others would contest and obviously argue, no, this is like a separation and segregation and we're separating everybody out and, and it's, it's making everything more difficult. But for her, she saw it as, no, this is a way to help the oppressed people so that we can get them more help and then we can we can kind of pull them up and pull them out. Another facet of it is, that the more you know the lower you go on on the rungs of of the intersectional scale whatever that is the more oppressed you are 
And the more oppressed you are, the more moral authority you have. So the higher you go, the less voice you have. That's why whites today are told, you know, you need to stop talking. And the reason why is because you don't have moral authority and we, we don't want to listen to you. We don't want to hear you. That's from intersectionality. So I'll go on ahead and just wrap it up with this uh, final observation is that as Crenshaw developed the intersectionality theory, really she was pushing for that idea that your identity is in your, your race which is kind of weird because, you know, race is really socially constructed. It really is. And, and But she's saying your identity is in your race. Your identity is in your gender. So um, so the idea is not, I, you know, I am, you know, my name's Eric and I happen to be a white person or my name is Eric and I happen to be a black person. You know, it's more I am white or somebody saying I am black. I you know, I'm not a person that happens to be black. I am black. That's my identity. And if I am a black homosexual, that is my identity. My gender is my identity. Now, the reality is not every homosexual thinks that way. They don't all you you don't get we don't get to just say they, this whole group, but that's what the critical theorists do. They speak in terms of of whole group. Of course, I did it too with them, but so so they're the ones that purport the idea of gender first. That's your identity. It's inseparable from you. Well, there are people who are practicing homosexuals and practicing transgender and whatever. And, and truly, they don't appreciate somebody else speaking for them saying, hey, my gender or my sexual preferences define me. That's my primary identity. No, you don't get to say that. So the reality is critical theorists will come out and they speak for all black people. But do they really do they really represent all black people? Do all black people think this way? Do all homosexuals think this way? I don't know where you really get this authority from, but okay, I will pull myself off the soapbox. And what I was trying to to wrap it up with is just that Crenshaw came to a place and I don't know how the decision was made, but basically there was a trade-off. There was the trade of of universal liberalism, which is kind of everybody's free and everybody can kind of decide, you know, the more uh, the, the more general postmodern idea, everybody can decide for themselves what they believe and their own truths. But if we're going to make this thing work and we're going to get somewhere, we've got to come up with a truth, with an objective reality, and we've got to land this thing. We got to get the rubber on the road. And so we're going to give up the idea of freedom and push into identity politics and identity politics is driving the belief system of equality. And when I say equality, I mean hyper equality. Of course, equality is a good thing, but equality of outcome. Well, that's that's for another episode, but that is not a good thing. If you're going to have hyper equality is what I call it, where you're, you're going to guarantee all outcomes are the same for every single person then you have to remove freedom. So there was a big trade-off in this, and that characterizes so much of, of the debate that we're seeing today. Okay, well, thanks for joining me, and uh, I'll, I'll pick up where, where I left off this next time.